Welcome to This Fundraising Life, a podcast about much more than just the numbers. I'm Heather Yando, a fundraising expert and the creator of the Individual Donor Benchmark Project. Today's guest is Meredith Emmett, a longtime nonprofit consultant and my partner in Third Space Studio. I hope you enjoy our conversation about fundraising roles and expectations, how to identify your organization's business model, and the importance of thank you notes. Meredith, welcome to This Fundraising Life. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Very happy to be here. So many of you know Meredith is my colleague at Third Space Studio, and she also has a varied history. She has been an executive director, she has been a board member, she has been a consultant. Um, And so Meredith, I actually want to start by asking you a little bit about what being in all of those different roles with organizations has taught you, what you've really learned by having wearing these different hats. Sure. So, you know, I realized I started, shall we say, my fundraising life as an executive director. Um, and it was close to 30 years ago when I started that fundraising life. And at that point, I hadn't been, I hadn't had, didn't have a long history as a donor. I had done a little bit of raising money for campus activities But for me, fundraising was incredibly scary. You know, I felt it always in the pit of my stomach because raising money was about supporting my staff and supporting the organization. And so it was really challenging. So that's, you know, one role. And then I've also been a board member and I've been a board member a couple different times. And it hasn't been until after being a consultant that I have really understood the power of board members raising money. And oftentimes board members raise money because they think they should. But when you shift to realizing that your job as a board member is generating and cultivating the passion of donors and inviting them into being a part of the mission of the organization, it becomes really fun. So as a board member, I've, I have just developed this real passion for fundraising that's different than the head work of being a consultant or that pit of the stomach fear of being an executive director fundraising. Interesting. And, you know, I suspect that many executive directors, board members, and consultants don't have that experience of wearing all the hats What do you see as kind of the challenges of those groups of people working together on fundraising? Well, I think one is recognizing that people have different roles. But I think all of us, whether you're an executive director or a board member or a consultant, become better fundraisers when we are also donors. So part of the joy that I've learned about fundraising is the joy of being a donor. So every time I associate with one of the organizations that I donate to, I feel like I am part of their cause. And when I take that energy back to being a consultant, it reminds me to work with our clients to get back to that movement building part of their fundraising, to recognize that the data is important, The systems are important. The relationships that are being built are important. But at the heart of that is passion for a cause and joy. 
And as a board member, I remember our job is to be those ambassadors and sort of to be the center of the movements that we're building. I wish I had known all of that as an executive director. I mean, when I was an executive director, I didn't have that same depth of knowledge but, um, or understanding. But now that working with, working with executive directors, reminding them that they are sort of the leader of this big movement. Mm. A leader of a movement is definitely a different way to view the executive director role. Indeed. So we had Melinda Wiggins from Student Action with Farm Workers on an earlier podcast. You and I both know Melinda. And one of the questions we got uh, for us to discuss a little bit today was other examples of organizations who really have a fundraising culture like Student Action with Farm Workers, where fundraising work is, is spread out among board and staff. So do you have any examples of organizations like that that you've worked with? So I'm going to be a little self-serving in my response to this question because the organization that I serve as the fundraising chair on, I think is doing a pretty good job at that. Um, It's the LRB Creek Watershed Association. It's a small organization. The budget's only about $370,000. The staff is also small. Um, There are I think right now there are four, maybe five folks. Most everyone on the staff is part-time except the, except the executive director. And then there's a board of 15 people. And some of the funding for the organization comes from grants and contracts, but close to a third of the funding is from events and individual donors. And we have figured out different ways for both board members and staff members to be involved in fundraising. So one simple example is we lead a lot of hikes and other events. And that means sometime during that event, a staff member or sometimes a board member, if a board member is present, reminds everyone that there's an organization behind that event and that it takes contributions of money to support that organization. And we invite people to be donors. Um, A second way is that we run an end of the year campaign and a good, oh, probably half of the board members, as well as some former board members, volunteer to make personal asks. And we've got a very well-developed system that we now use to involve those board members and volunteers. And then we run a couple of events, the biggest one being our Beaver Queen pageant. And that involves a whole committee of people who host the event. And so the key thing is that there are a variety of different ways where people can show up and help with fundraising. And everyone knows that fundraising matters and that they are contributing to the overall success of the organization by helping to fundraise. We just launched our um, annual campaign at our annual meeting, and it was such a delight to be able to stand up and say, you know, the goal for the annual campaign is $65,000. The board has made the first contributions. 100% of the board members are giving, and they are giving the first 15,000 of that $65,000 goal 
And then we invited the people who were there at the annual meeting to also contribute and to step up in this case as monthly donors. So, you know, it's just making sure that there are lots of ways for people to plug in and that it's the ex- expectation of being a staff member or a board member. Yeah, I, I really like that you pointed out there is there's an expectation. There's also an energy around fundraising. So it's not just a duty, uh, but it is part of the mission. And I also really like that, that for this organization, the ways to plug into fundraising are not as scary as they could be. So a lot of times I hear executive directors say, I want all of my board members to be out asking for major gifts. And that's just really challenging when you have a board uh, that doesn't have a lot of experience doing that. But it sounds like Ellerbee Creek Watershed Association has really built a system where people can plug in where they are and they can learn some skills and become more comfortable and over time potentially contribute in different ways. Absolutely. And even our staff has had to learn those pieces. So just to give you one example of the uh, impact of this podcast, Chris Drups, who's the executive director of EQUA, now is doing Fundraising Tuesdays because he heard Melinda talk about her No Meeting Mondays. And so, I mean, it's just important to remember that everybody can always learn more about being a good fundraiser. And you start where people are and you keep developing their skill set. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear that. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the Beaver Queen pageant because um, I know our listeners are interested in events. We had Brooke Battle on to talk about events a couple of podcasts ago. Um, So I wanted to just ask you, first of all, just tell us a little bit about what the Beaver Queen pageant is. So at its core, the Beaver Queen pageant is a beaver drag show. So every year, a group of people, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that group of people in a minute, recruits a set of contestants. It's good to have four or five. Sometimes we've had six contestants. Those contestants create a character. So like it might be Beaver Juice might be their character or Fur Eddie Mercury was one of the characters from the last year. And then they compete with one another and they compete in categories like it might be a beauty pageant. So things like wetland ready wear, there's evening wear, a talent section. And then there's usually like a an essay question, but it's a it's a conversation with the MC. And we host this big out, it happens outdoor and a, outdoors in a big meadow and people are on stage competing with one another. And then we raise money because you vote for your favorite contestant, or you also might bribe a judge. And so we've gotten to the place where we usually raise around $22,000, $23,000 in this kind of wacky, wacky event. I try to tell other people in other parts of the country about it, and they kind of look at me with this glazed look. So I think part of it is it's very... Um, unique to the culture of Durham, North Carolina, and it kind of fits who we are, but it's whimsical and fun. And believe it or not, it is family friendly. Well, I have been to the Beaver Queen pageant and it is one of my favorite events. Um, So 
you know, if, if someone listening was thinking about doing something like the Beaver Queen pageant, you know, what advice might you have for them about what needs to be in place for this to really be successful? You, you already mentioned that it needs, the event is unique to the culture of Durham. So I suspect that if someone wanted to model an event after this, you'd really want to think about what would make it unique to the culture of wherever you are. But any other advice or factors of success that you would suggest? So one of the reasons that Beaver Queen pageant works is that there is a group of people called Beaver Lodge 1504. They actually initiated the event almost 15 years ago, and they initiated the event because there was a lodge of real beavers who were being threatened um, by the Department of Transportation. And so they did it as a way to raise awareness. And then they decided, why not make it a fundraiser? And then they had such a good time doing it that they wanted to do it again and wanted it to be a fundraiser, so partnered with the Ellerbee Creek Watershed Association. So we as ECWA don't recruit the contestants. You know, we don't do the staging. They put on the show and we fundraise around the show that they create. So it's this real partnership of people who want to do something really fun um, and then a group of people who have the potential to benefit from that fun doing all the systems of fundraising around that. Um, And there's some other pieces of logistics that we do. But it's like, if you want to do a really fun event that fits your community, find people who are already doing something fun who may want to turn it into a fundraiser and need some help doing that. Because I really believe in every community, there is a group of people who just like to plan a really good party. That is definitely true in my experience. You know, one of the other reasons why I think that the Beaver Queen pageant works is because it is matched to Ellerby Creek's business model. So I know you do a lot of work with organizations about business models and, and how to figure out the ideal model for you. So I want to talk just a little bit about that and, and really start with what is a business model? It's a little bit of jargon. So I wonder if you could just tell us what, what your definition is. So, I mean, at its core, a business model is how the organization brings in money to support, and it is dependent on what you are producing as an organization or what your core assets are. So to give you a completely different kind of business model than the Ellerbee Creek Watershed Association. Let's take a school. I mean, a school's business model is you've got kids who are there learning. You can only put so many kids in a classroom. And the business model is we're going to charge tuition. We may not be able to charge them as much tuition as it costs to provide that education. So we may have some ways that we subsidize the cost of tuition, you know, and it might, it, most often it's in, it's an individual donor campaign or some sort of annual campaign, or perhaps it's an endowment, but it's all about th- that one kid has a cost of service. Um, 
for somebody like the Ellerbe Creek Watershed Association, a lot of our work is providing a service. I mean, we do a lot of work with our local government on stormwater management or land conservation, and that's got contracts and grants associated with it. But we're also trying to build a movement of people who care about the creek and care that the creek is a, a healthy creek in a healthy watershed, and that there's green spaces for all of us in Durham to enjoy. And so as part of building that movement, that's where individual donors come in, because it's a way for individual donors to be part of that movement. And you know this, but I want to say this to everyone else. I don't believe that all nonprofits should cultivate individual donors, because for some organizations, that's not what they are about. And it's a very hard thing for them to build relationships with individual donors if it's not a part of who they are. I mean, the best example of that is some sort of research or think tank organization who is producing reports or doing, um, doing research. Individual donors don't necessarily feel a connection or feel like they are part of that work. So why is the organization trying to reach individual donors. You might have a couple really large, big individuals who care about that, but more than likely you have foundations who are going to be paying for that research. Yeah, I think this idea that all organizations, all nonprofits need to have individual donors is pretty pervasive. And so I appreciate you making the point that not all nonprofits need individual donors. I also know that you've done a little bit of thinking about the typical business models or kind of you you have a framework for a set of different business models. And I wonder if you could share that with us just so folks could maybe start to identify which one or two that their organization really fits in. Sure, Heather. So what we've done is sort of synthesize out four primary business models that you can see in multiple different nonprofits. And some nonprofits use more than one business model. So you could see two of these business models in an organization. And if you see an organization trying to do three of them, they're probably trying to do too much. Um, So that said, the four business models are, first and foremost, is being a cause connector. These are the organizations that are all about connecting people to a cause. The the Komen folks, the Susan Bean Komen Foundation is a great example. It's all about breast cancer awareness. They do that through multiple different kinds of sponsorship activities, um, their race, those kinds of things. I think Habitat for Humanity is all about the connecting the cause of providing housing. I mean, they're not the most efficient way of building houses, but what they do is help people like you and me build a relationship with somebody who needs an affordable house and show up and participate in building that house. Um, So that's one cause connector. The second is solutions innovator, the people who are designing and creating new solutions. And they may be research. These are oftentimes think tanks but they also could be people who are creating new ideas um, and really testing those ideas. One of my favorite ones is the Rocky Mountain Institute, 
which is an organization created by Amory Lovins. I think they're in Colorado. They are all about energy efficiency and finding new wacky ideas sometimes for energy efficiency. And most of their funding comes in through either large corporate sponsorships or foundation grants. Many, many nonprofits are service providers, things like the homeless shelter, things like a soup kitchen, things like the domestic violence shelter. They're providing a service to a group of people and figuring out how much does that service cost and who pays for it. And sometimes those services are paid for government. Um, sometimes they these organizations also end up doing a lot of individual donor fundraising to supplement what it costs to provide the service versus what they get from government. And then the last one, which curiously we might be seeing less of, is what I would call member motivator, the organizations that really have a strong membership model. Folks like Sierra Club, AARP, they are about attracting people to be members, sometimes selling a product to those members, uh, but also providing services to those members and sometimes motivating them to be advocates for a cause. Frequently, their uh, revenues are membership dues and additional individual donor contributions. So those four types kind of make sense to me, but if someone is listening and isn't quite sure what their business model is, how do we think about figuring that out? I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier of like, what's the core of what you are providing? I mean, is it a big idea? Is it a service? Is it the opportunity to connect with a cause? Is it some sort of membership? So I think sometimes people want to look at their revenue side to figure it out and say, well, we have individual donors, therefore we're a cause connector. I think the better place to look is to don't pay any attention to the revenue side of your profit and loss statement. Really look at what's the, what are the programs that we offer? You know, what's the nugget of that that we're offering and who benefits from that? You know, if the beneficiary is a set of individuals who are receiving some sort of service, that tells us you're a service provider. If the benefit is sort of society, because we're offering some big idea, then maybe you are a solutions innovator. But who benefits? And then think about who pays. Mm, great. So who benefits and then who pays? So we've talked about a lot of things, but one of the things that I know that you have some passionate feelings about, so I want to ask you about, is thank you notes. Thank you notes for, for donations, for support of organizations. So I just want to get your, your opinion about the importance and the forms of thank you notes. So let's go back to what I said early on about what I've learned about fundraising from being a donor. And what I've learned about fundraising is it's all about igniting that person's passion, that person's joy, that person's connection to your organization. And so the thank you note has to illustrate that, which means it needs to be really personal or at least seem personal. And it's not about the tax deductible nature of the gift or the fact that I received no services in return, that's fine to put somewhere down low in the PS or some supplementary text 
but like, tell me why you're so excited that I'm part of your organization. And, you know, the personal note on the bottom of it means so much. I mean, long time ago, I stepped into a fundraising event of an organization that I had been the executive director of. It was a anniversary event. And I realized there was no pitch happening for fundraising. And I stepped in when I was introduced. I made a fundraising pitch. I made a contribution. I wrote a check, was the first donor into that pitch. And about a month later, I got a standard thank you note that had probably gone to everybody who had come to that event that said, thank you for being a part of our event. We are so glad you were there. And that's all it said, had no mention of the fact that I had stepped in and done that, no appreciation for the value that I added, I will never give to that organization again. And that's an organization I was the executive director of. So thank you notes are a chance to really invite people in. And they're also a risk because you could really turn somebody off if you don't do it well. Absolutely. You know, people put a lot of money our time, I don't mean money, but put a lot of time into their bookkeeping because they want their books to be kept right. I think the same amount of time needs to go into maintaining your database and writing thank you notes because that's maintaining a significant asset if your organization depends on individual donors. Absolutely. So Meredith, as we wrap up, how can folks stay in touch with you? Well, they can always find me just like they can find you at thirdspacestudio.com and certainly can email me right through that. And I'm happy to respond to people's questions and ideas through email at any time. And then is there any last uh, wisdom or advice you want to leave our listeners with? I think it's to remember that at the other side of every request that we put out, for a donation and a contribution is another human being. And it's a human being that has ideas, that it's a human being that wants to connect with something that's bigger than themselves, and that you as the fundraiser are making that invitation. And so it's always about inviting people into something that's bigger than any one of us. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us on This Fundraising Life. Remember that you can find show notes and links to more episodes at thirdspacestudio.com slash podcast. We want to hear your questions and comments. Email us at podcast at thirdspacestudio.com and let us know what questions you have and what topics you want us to cover in the future. And if you haven't yet, please download this year's donor data at thirdspacestudio.com slash IDB project.